turn this up, Charles. You gotta turn this up in my headphones. Turn it up in the headphones. Just for you. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We always appreciate the listen. So, thank you for being here. That we do. Yes. I am very appreciative. Very appreciative. Today is a very exciting day. We have finished reading uh, book two of the Mistborn series, Wells of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. This is our buddy read. Yeah, our buddy read continues with Well of Ascension <laughs> Yes, by uh, Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> well said, well stated. <laughs> Man, this is a this is exciting. We only have one more book left to go, and then we finish our first trilogy of the show. That will be a momentous occasion, my good buddy Charles. It will be a a big milestone with my with my good buddy Dylan. So, um, should we just uh, just jump 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 right into it? We could. I, I think you should give them the big news from this last weekend. What's the big news? Charles, don't be modest. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't you want to tell them about Catan? Oh, have we ever told them about Catan? No, but something very important happened this last weekend. Oh, well, for those of you that don't know, Dylan and I are you are friends, and as part of our friendship, <laughs> back we the meet outside of the podcast to do... To have fun together, and one of those things we do is we play Catan virtually on the internet mm-hmm. with another friend of ours, another good friend of ours. Shout and out to Derek. Shout out to you, Derek boy. Um, oh. So the three of us play Catan. How many games have we played in the past three months? Like 10? 10. 11? 10. And uh, I won my first game on Saturday. It was a big deal for me. It was huge. It was huge. It was long overdue, honestly. Um, I've come close many times, but this time it just it just all came together. Uh, luck of the cards, man. Uh, I was very excited. I had a really strong setup. Um, my opponent had. Derek had both largest army and longest road. He was really he was he one point away from winning for many turns. Tell but, him about the brick port, Charles. Oh, the brick port. You guys wouldn't believe this brick port setup I was running. I had like I had a city and a settlement on two different brick tiles. So over I had the potential to collect a lot of brick and I was settled on the brick port. Man. I was cashing it in. They they couldn't stop me. They were trying to move the robber. You move it to one, I still got the other. No big deal. They move it around, they can't stop me. They tried their best. But in the end, I brought it home. Very excited. That you did. And now I think we're we're ready to stop playing Catan. (laughs) And uh, we can move on to another game. (laughs) Well, for those doing the math at home, there are three of us. Me, Charles, and our buddy Derek. We like to call ourselves the M crew. <laughs> All of our last names start with M. It's true. And, you know, one person wins each game, and we've played 
10 games and Charles won his first game. <laughs> so, you know, statistically not not great from Charles, but he's on a one game winning streak. We haven't played enough games for a really proper statistical analysis. Yeah, 10 games we need is just to not enough. Need but, to get to maybe like three hundred. <laughs> like, then we'll you're, see. You're, you're the you're the one doing actual studies. You you should know what we need yeah. for a sample size. Ten would not do. That's fair. Yeah. So you know what? I would withhold any kind of judgment. I won. I won the most recent game, and um, we may move on to something else. Maybe a nice cooperative game for a change. <laughs> That would be nice, especially after the the huge arguments that you and Derek have been getting in Things after got recent heated, games. Although I still stand by my defense, and uh, you know what, the proof was in the pudding at the end of the day. So the proof wasn't in the pudding. You got into a fight <laughs> over the first game, which I won, and Derek was telling you that the way you played was wrong. That's what the fight well, was Well, he was so. playing way worse than me, so I don't know what his problem was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think something co-op could be good for the future. So that's our big news update at the yes. top of the show. Congratulations Charles to with me. the big win. Yes, the big win. Long overdue. I mean, there was another one that I was going to win and rolled the seven and then it was, I had to give up half my cards. It was a disaster. Any other dice roll I would have won. So that one kind of counts. But And for those of you who have never played Catan, uh, you're welcome for this. What is it, like five, yeah, six that would minutes be that we've talked someone about Someone listening to Catan. a fantasy podcast, like a deep cut fantasy podcast, and also have not played Catan. Yeah, uh, there's probably a substantial amount of overlap there, so I don't feel too bad. If you're someone who is listening to our Mistborn Book 2 Wells of Ascension podcast and has not played Catan, reach out to us. We'd be interested to know if you exist. Or if you're anyone listening to our podcast, please reach out to us. Where can they do that again, Charles? (laughs) Where can they do that? Where can't they do it? I mean, we're everywhere. We're Facebook, we're Instagram, we're Twitter. Uh... FTF podcast, unless Twitter, then it's FTF podcast one. Don't ask. Yeah. Um, and uh, FTF podcast at gmail.com. Oh, sorry. The FTF podcast at gmail.com. That's my mistake. FTF podcast at gmail.com. Shoot us an email, please. <laughs> Let us know you're out there. I have a firm it, belief no one's going to be out there for a very long time. I have a little more faith. I know you're out there. (laughs) I do believe in you. I hope for you. And uh, speaking of hope, by the way. Oh, (laughs) that's a beautiful seg right there, Charles. Speaking of hope, let's talk about this book. Who's going to read the intro, you or me? You got it, Charles. You got it? All right. We prepared an intro this time. Last time was a little shoot off the cuff. This time we prepared just for you. So right now we're reading, this is our buddy read of uh, Mistborn Book 2, Wells of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. Uh, So this is the second of three books. Uh, If you're listening to this, you've already read book two, we're hoping. We're going to pretty much get into the spoilers. And you've already listened to 
our first episode, Buddy Reed number one. Yes. The Final Empire. Mistborn the Final Empire. Yes. Of course. Also by Brandon Sanderson. So be sure to go listen to that. We have a lot that we're going to reference from that episode. And let's just get right into it. So Wells of Ascension. Here's a little intro for you. In the wake of the Lord Ruler's death, Luthadel is in turmoil. Elend is king now, and the thieving crews are his advisors. Three hostile armies besiege Luthadel, one of which is led by Elend's father and his bastard, insane, maybe? Mistborn's son, Zane. Meanwhile, someone in the inner circle is a Chondra spy, which Vin and her own Chondra seek to identify. The mists have started coming out in the day and killing a small number of people. Vin, Sezed, and Tindwell, a female keeper, search through writings by Quan, the Terrasman prophet who proclaimed the original Hero of Ages, to try and find out why the mists are killing people and how to stop it. Hmm. Nailed the, it. That, thank you. And, and for real that time. <laughs> I know, we had written this one for uh, 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 Ellen's father and his bastard, parentheses, insane, question mark, misborn son, Zane. So I had to take a few liberties with how to read that. But I think it was good. Yeah, Because awesome. is he insane? We'll get into it. Um, one other thing I wanted to note before we get into the real discussion is I was reading through Sanderson's prolific annotations on his book, and right at the top, he says, um, when he's describing why he wrote this book, everyone has read the stories of the heroes overthrowing a tyrant. What I don't think many people have read is the story of those same heroes trying to build and rule a kingdom following their great victory. So that's basically the influence, the, the idea that was the seed that grew into this book. So just thought I would. That's an awesome it. grab there, Charles. I hadn't heard that one, but it makes total sense. Yes. You think of all these, there's so many books and movies and whatnot that end once the empire or what have you is toppled. I, I think of Star Wars uh, for mm-hmm. one, right? or at least the original trilogy ended with the toppling of the empire mm-hmm. and you don't really get to see what comes after. And in Star Wars case, they just reset everything and pick up <laughs> later on, right, which they don't is even annoying. Happen. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, here you get to see something pretty unique in regard to, okay, what happens after a rebellion is successful? Right. That's one of the things that's interesting about just a lot of modern fantasies trying to explore these ideas beyond just good and evil and good defeating evil it's like okay well we know that story in some cases we've read that story at a hundred times but what happens afterwards and in some cases actually trying to build and rule afterwards can be more difficult than actually toppling the empire in the first place and that's kind of the one of the main like directions this book goes in is that idea of what do we do now? How do we move forward? This is more difficult than we thought. There's a lot of consequences we have to now deal with as a result of our overthrowing of the Lord Ruler. It's interesting that you bring this up, Charles. It actually makes me think about how much of media ends with a relationship starting. So maybe the end of a Disney movie, typically Mm -hmm. the 
two love interests get together, but we don't actually get to, they presumably live happily ever after, but we don't get to see the relationship continue. And I think that's another thing that we get to see in this book is Vin and Ellen end up together at the end of the final empire. And then we actually get to see, okay, well, what happens after that moment where Vin decides to trust again or trust for the first time, really. And those two presumably get together and live happily ever after question mark. (laughs) Yeah. And not to bring up uh, uh, star Wars again, especially the newer movies, but you know, it's like um, Han Solo and Leia, they end up together at the end of their original trilogy. And in the, in the sequels, they, they are divorced. So it's just like, Oh man, there's a little more, complication in there it's not necessarily happily ever after now is it and this book is a lot about kind of the fallout of of these moments specifically around this idea and uh dylan and i have discussed kind of what this book is about in in depth in preparation for this episode and the main focus of our conversations today are going to be this idea of identity and the just how each character is dealing with their identity and now that the lord ruler is toppled and everyone's trying to rebuild it's like well now that we've done the impossible we've defeated the god king lord ruler what what who are we what what are we doing here like how do we move move forwards from this and everyone kind of goes through this really uh character driven story it, it, this this book is particularly about character over plot i would say I'd agree with you there. And I think a big piece regarding that identity is how identity plays itself out in our relationships with others, especially, but not exclusively romantic relationships in this book. Mm -hmm. So should we go ahead and kick it off with one of our main characters in this story is Ellen Venture. Yeah. As we mentioned in the intro, Ellen is king now and the thieving crew are his advisors. Um, we've watched this little, uh, bookworm still kind of a child turn into someone with the responsibility of a king and he's trying to grow into that role and it's proving to be very difficult for him at the beginning of the book and he's having a very hard time commanding respect while also sticking true to his honesty, um, he one of the quotes that sticks to me is somewhere in the middle of the book i think he's talking to tindwill and he said can you not be both a man who follows his conscience and a good king so he's having a hard time believing in his new kingdom where he's giving the ska rights and he's having them live amongst with the noblemen he's building an assembly that has just as much of power as himself as king he's really trying to give power to the people and he's experienced a lot of fallout from that Um, and so he's trying to figure out man this would be so much easier if i was a tyrant like the lord ruler and kind of enforced my will on people so i can take control and cause progress but that goes against the whole reason i went into politics in the first place was to give power to the people Yeah, I think you summarized that really well there, Charles. I thought of it as so much of it is about Ellen trying to figure out how he can stand by his values while 
at the same time doing the things that one has to do if they're going to be able to stay in power. We get to see Ellen in this book actually lose power, at least temporarily, Mm -hmm. where he, by his own system that he created, because he's so such an idealist, he creates a system that can relatively easily (laughs) vote him out in his new position, and he actually has to face that pretty soon into his reign. Right. The irony was that he was deposed by the laws that he wrote. Um, And I think there were two reactions to that. A lot of the characters were like, wow, you're really stupid for doing that. (laughs) And other characters were like, uh, you know, good for you for being an idealist. You know, you had to stick to your virtues. Um, I think one of the things that Ellen had to, and that all these characters are going through. And when we talk about other characters like Cezed and, and, and Vin, um, they make these promises to themselves and it's promises of what their, what their virtues are. In Ellen's case, he's, he's promised himself to be honest and he can't compromise on that. So his, when he eventually does develop more into a king, he he figures out how to stay true to himself and, and keep his honesty and his promises while also taking a more commanding presence as an emperor and a king. So that was a really interesting character development for Ellen. Certainly his whole identity is all caught up in this idea of, am I worthy of being king? How can I be king if I don't, if I'm trying to stay honest and want to give power to people and um, that's just his his trajectory. One of the relationships that I want to talk about with Ellen um, before we get too far into it is, is actually his um, relationship with Kelsier in this book. Mm. Um, he mentions Kelsier a couple times, and every time it's always about how he couldn't he couldn't never live up to Kelsier. Like even after Kelsier's dead and gone, everyone likes. Kelsier more than him and he's always been trying to play he's basically playing second fiddle to Kelsier um, so he said basically one of these quotes here there was no one mold for kingship he would not be like the kings of the past any more than he would be like Kelsier uh, which you know throughout he drops lines throughout the whole book being like oh you know Kelsier wouldn't have had this problem Kelsier would have just gone and solved the problem he would have made it more direct made it made it you know made it right, made everyone happy. And meanwhile, it seems like everyone hates Ellen. So this connection with Kelsier, I think, is a really interesting one as Ellen struggles with his own identity. Charles, that is such a great point. <laughs> I love how Kelsier just looms large over this book. He's my favorite character in the first book. And he has set this precedent for what the leader of this crew is supposed to be like and I think Ellen for a long time in the book feels he has to be Kelsier in some way and he just sees everyone look at him with these looks of why aren't you Kelsier he even (laughs) thinks there's some of that coming from Vin and And he's not an alamancer and like his girlfriend is way more powerful than him and so he's dealing with that as well so much of it. And I think that where he finally gets to with all of this is awesome because he carves out 
this space where it's it's fine that he'll never be Kelsier. There are a lot of things that Kelsier couldn't do that Ellen can do or is better equipped to do. And uh, Ellen, yeah, he'll never be the charismatic, uh, roguish, if you listened to our last episode, <laughs> right. type figure that uh, Kelsier was. And Kelsier was the man that they needed to topple a god king. But really where they come to in this book was Kelsier is never going to be the man to rule over a kingdom and deal with the day-to-day of that. He just, he would have gone out and done some really, really <laughs> risky things, I think, right? that could have got him into trouble, especially when they ran out of Adium and uh, Kelsier would not have been able to take on Zane using Adium mm-hmm. in all likelihood. He probably would have tried to. He probably would have got himself killed. <laughs> and I think Elend comes into his own in this book by accepting that he'll never be Kelsier, and that's a good thing. Right. I mean, I think Sanderson made such a great move by killing Kelsier in the first book and then having him loom over in the second book. Kelsier's personality, he overshadowed everything and everyone when he was alive. Uh, Ellen could have never developed as a character, and as long as Kelsier was there, because he's such a dominating presence, he was a... Also, Kelsier was basically a character at the end of his arc in book one, while everyone else really didn't get their chance to shine until this book. So by killing him off at the end, because like you said, he had nowhere to go. He had no business ruling over everybody after toppling no. the Lord Ruler. He he got that was the point of his end when he realized that he needed to be the hope for everyone else by sacrificing himself. That was his character coming around, coming to the end of his arc. And now we have characters like Ellen who are stepping out. They're just beginning. And it's so much more interesting if they have to just, if the rest of the thieving crew and Ellen have to do things without him, there's just so much more interesting stuff that can happen. I don't think this book could have, been written the same way if Kelsier was still alive. So I think that was a really interesting and really genius um, creative decision by Sanderson and his treatment of Kelsier in book two. Well stated, Charles. I I think we'll when we get to Vin, who we'll talk about later, I think we'll discuss her relationship with Ellen. So I think we'll get there with him. I do want to mention a couple of quotes I pulled that are from Tindwell, actually, that she says to Ellen, and they're not super... uh, They they hint at a little bit some of this identity and relationship stuff, but Mm -hmm. I'll say I just pulled them because I think they're awesome lines, and (laughs) Tindwell really wrecks him at points. (laughs) At one point, she says, you have proven that you cannot be trusted in the area of personal grooming. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine if someone just dropped that line on you? Ooh, she really did tear him down. Tyndall was interesting. Like, Sanderson made attempts to show that she had other sides to her character, and she was only particularly strict around Ellen's because Mm -hmm. she knew that he needed to be stripped down to the foundation, which which created some of the better scenes in the beginning of the book. Yeah, I really like Tindwell as a character. I, w- I wish she lasted 
longer, honestly. She has yeah. another line. She says, you are still a fool, Ellen Venture. You just don't look like one anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and she's got a few more like this, but those are the two that stuck out to me as just like savage. Yeah, she's pretty brutal to poor Ellen, but he needed it. Yeah, and I, I like that about her. I, I've known people who played some mentorship roles in my own life who had this kind of approach where they had a good sense for giving someone what they know they need mm -hmm. and not just applying that same mentorship strategy across everyone. And it's super effective. And I think Sanderson illustrates that really well here. Right. And he goes out of his way to have other scenes with Tind Will where she's a little more forgiving, a little less harsh. Yeah. Like with her and Vin, they go dress shopping. Mm. That was a nice little uh, B yeah. plot line with the dress shopping. <laughs> I liked with, that. With the girls. I thought it too was one of the more different things that happened in the book. And it's a lot of back and forth between the same set pieces. And then finally, we're doing something different. That moment existed purely to develop the character of Tindwill mostly. And then, um, what's her name? Chet's. Al uh, Rianne. Chet's daughter Rianne that's how you pronounce it Al Rianne Al Rianne yes Al Rianne Al Rianne Al Rianne I think you got there okay yeah so it was to remind everyone that she existed and get Vin back in dresses but we're going to talk about Vin's identity issues and her dress issues later on very soon great actually. tease <laughs> but yeah something to look forward to in this episode two men talking about dresses that's right because if by... anyone's gonna do <laughs> a good just... job of talking about femininity and dresses it's you and me charles not and only are we talking about femininity and dresses, we're talking about them as written by a fellow white man so... yeah so you know this is going to be a really productive conversation on femininity you know this is going to be insightful so get a pen and paper get ready to take notes yeah uh, the only other quote that I pulled that revolves around Ellen and is a Tindwell quote because I was kind of pulling quotes that were more around trust because I thought that was going to play a bigger role than it, like it did in the first book. But uh, they go, what do you think it makes a man a good king, Tindwell of Terrace? And then she says, trust. A good king is one who is trusted by his people and one who deserves trust. And... I think Ellen never thought he deserved it until he kind of, he joined the Church of the Survivor, which I thought was a nice metaphor of him kind of accepting Kelsier, that he would never be Kelsier, and also his kind of ex getting more involved with the sky. I thought that was a unique aspect, and um, he's kind of earning people's trust, and he's he's turning himself into a person that feels like he deserves it. I think that was his biggest challenge, so that's why I pulled that quote yeah i think that's that's a great one i think that him joining the church of the survivor also indicates that he's willing to do things when they're politically pragmatic and yep. even if they move a little bit away from what his actual beliefs are because it's not that he actually believes in what the Church of the Survivor folks believe in, but he's yes. thinking, oh, I actually need them as political allies. So, yeah, I'm, 
I'm happy to go do that. And once I do it, I will stand by my commitment because that's important to me. But I don't actually have to stand rigidly by all my actual beliefs, which takes them a little bit away from this rigid scholar and toward a right. person and that's why who I makes think the it's right important moves. when we're talking about these characters struggling with identity is what promises do they make to themselves? And then when they truly have achieved their character development, it's when they it's when they stick to those promises. And in one of Ellen's many examples of sticking to his promises is joining the Church of Survivor. He gets deposed. The church has no strategic value anymore. He could have easily just been like, nah, I'm good. But he still continued to play a role in it and fulfill his promise. And I think that served on two levels. There's the political level and there's his character staying true to himself and his promises. And then there's also that acceptance element of it because of Kelsier's shadow uh, in the beginning of book two. And then by the time he joins the Church of Sur the Survivor, he's not so heavily... Um, worried about living up to Kelsier. So I thought that was a nice little moment. I agree. Well, we went longer on Ellen than I would have guessed, but he was like, the we main had some character good stuff there. Book. Well, we can, the next uh, character we can go through relatively quickly, but you don't think Ellen's the main character of this book. I think Vin is still the main well, character. Still Let's the not main get character, but Ellen's the one going through the most development. I would say. Like, Vin goes through some, but it's like... I, I think it's fair to say that Ellen had the most character development in this book. Mm -hmm. But Vin's still the main character. Oh, That's right, the way I oh, see it anyway. Right, fine, fine, fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, in a, in a book about character development, Ellen's the character that went through the most character development. So, I don't know. <laughs> fair. Fair. I'm not gonna. But I mean, you can't say Vin's I'm not, not gonna argue a main with you. It about... is Mistborn, <laughs> and uh, so obviously Vin's a main character. I just Ellen is way up there, on par with Vin's character in terms of stuff that's happening in this book. Well, I agree. But Shall a, we? A character move that's basically not the main character is <laughs> Zed. Zed's. <laughs> uh, Struggle with identity is a little more obvious, especially towards the end. He struggles with faith. And in the end of the book, he ultimately loses his faith after the Coloss attacks. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of hinted at right at his first chapter in the beginning of the book. Because here he toppled the Lord Ruler. His whole job as Keeper was to remember all these religions so that one day when the Lord Ruler was gone, he could go out and teach everybody all that he knows, and all the other keepers could use all of their knowledge to educate society. And his first chapter, his supposed glorious return of the keepers, ended up being pretty underwhelming. No one cared about anything he had to teach them. Like, everyone kind of begrudgingly learned the lessons that he had, and certainly no one had any kind of faith, except maybe the Church of the Survivor, but that's only because they all saw Kelsier, and they killed the Lord Ruler, so no one really cared about all these other <laughs> religions. So you have Seizet, whose one job was to teach people, and no one wanted to learn. And then you go on to have these Coloss attacks, where he watched people just get brutally murdered by vicious creatures, and he just lost, he loses faith, which 
is an interesting uh, build up to his redemption in, in, in book three, but no spoilers for book three, but it is kind of a fun little setup for his knowing how book three ends. It's, it's interesting how Sanderson's plotting is moving on throughout the trilogy with Sezed, but well, the, the loss of Tindwell uh, mm-hmm. for Sezed when they're clearly falling in love or, or something along those lines. I think that's fair to say. It was, yeah. So the the loss of Tindwell was huge for shaking his faith. I think he'd cared a lot about people before, but he'd never truly been in love before from what we can gather. And I, so that, that was a big one. And, and I think what, at least my first time reading this book, went a little... I didn't notice as much was how he he's finally basically able to convert clubs to mm. a religion. He finds one that works. So clubs is is uh, a super even clubs gets dude. his little bit of character development. <laughs> it's like two. He seconds. gets a lot, a surprising <laughs> amount in this book actually, considering he had time, almost yeah. no lines. Yeah, in the first one, and so he ends up converting to this because we see on his dead body is this oh, i think like wooden chip that says gave him yeah he was wearing it as a necklace and then he may have been like clutching it or something i can't remember but he was definitely wearing it yeah so he dies and then i think part of what's going through says head where he's losing faith is this idea that he converted this guy he cares about and then the guy just promptly dies. It just didn't help him at all. So seeing that and also seeing all these people who are in the Church of the Survivor who thought that Kelsier would come save them or something like that also die in front of him. Right. I think just had him thinking, okay, what what is any of this actually doing for people? Right. And on top of all of that, the way this book ends, he finds out that... Um, it's not the deepness. It's called um. What's the the bad the big bad in this? It's not the ruin, ruin but I don't it, think it. I don't think it's said in this book. This book ends with him realizing that someone's been changing history. Um, yes, for hundreds of years. Oh, that's so true. And so going. he's yeah. he's like everything I learned was a trick in the first place. None of it was even true. It was this elaborate ruse by the deepness ruin to make us free him eventually it was this long con to get the to get the wells of ascension the power and the wells of ascension released into the world so he's beyond shaken by the end of book two it's like even all the stuff i thought i fought so hard to remember in my metal minds has been corrupted and the foundation on everything that we believed has been corrupted so what is even the point anymore Charles, that's a great point. I would have felt bad if we overlooked this one. <laughs> I got because that's the that's the terrorist religion that had those prophecies. So that's Sazed's people's religion. And let's not forget and, the Lord Ruler was terrorist also, and he murdered. <laughs> he tried to commit genocide. Yeah, that of too. His whole religion. That doesn't that doesn't help. And I think the fact that the thing that would be closest to his religion. And the thing he probably held up most as trying to discover stuff about was the terrorist religion. 
and finding out that that was just built on this all these lies from some sort of entity that is manipulating them is just a huge fatal blow maybe not fatal a huge blow to Sazed's faith and we'll see him ruminate about that for probably 500 pages in the next book (laughs) but it's all part of his glorious arc which we won't get into but the only other thing that i noted about Sazed that i thought was super interesting and this is part of sanderson's beautiful way he likes to have opposites work together uh because Sazed has always been even self-described as a rebel in book one maybe more than book two where you know he never kind of fit in with the rest of the terracemen and they dedicate a lot of time between Sazed and Tinswell to talk about how much of a rebel Sazed has been and yet he was the one that got the most results and they were kind of debating back and forth it's like is he a good terraceman or not like he went against the order at all times he he went against his nature as um as a terraceman to become to join the Steven crew uh, but in the end he's the one who helped play a huge part in overthrowing the lord ruler and he's now leading the way in in research on the wells of ascension and to me what makes this character so interesting and what makes a lot of sanderson character is so interesting is because it's nice when you can make a character feel real turmoil for doing the right thing say zed always believed he was doing the right thing but he also felt really bad about it which is brilliant the same way that vin uh, did the right thing at the wells of ascension yes but it ended up she ended up feeling very bad for it so this whole and Ellen does the right thing many times as king and then feels bad because it gets him in a position where he can't make decisions for his people anymore because he gets deposed. I mean, Very that's true. all over the place in this book. It's really a really interesting, more higher level concept of being like, I'm doing the right thing all the time, but it's not, it's just really tough. <laughs> it's not easy to do. And it's, uh, I, there, I'm, I'm in turmoil, just existing with myself, trying to do the right thing. Who would have thought doing the right thing would be so difficult? And I think that's that's something that people face all the time in real life. I think most people are trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. yet there's so many people that we see out there doing things that we think are really messed up or wrong. And I think a lot of us, are dealing with that, right? We're all the heroes of our own stories. Um, mm-hmm. And then we still have these moments where we we do stuff that's wrong, often unintentionally. And then we have to live with the consequences, which is what this book really tries to get into, the meat of, of how do we develop as people facing the consequences of our our actions so mm-hmm. the such as overthrowing the lord ruler that's yeah. right well i feel good about what we got out there about Sazed. i think there'll be a lot more of Sazed discussion in our next buddy read so i think that's fair shall we go on to talking about vin and also her relationship with zane kick it off buddy well I think that this is a big part of the book is so Vin is 
obviously in something of a relationship with Ellen, although I don't think she's quite ready to put a label on it. And Sanderson maybe being a Mormon doesn't know that anything comes between like we're interested in each other and marriage. So she doesn't want to get married to him and not Sanderson. I mean, Ellen and uh, (laughs) Vin. Vin is uh, pretty much uh, going back and forth throughout this book between these two sides of herself that she sees as, in classic Sanderson fashion, being completely opposed uh, to each other. So there's what she sees as the Vin side of herself, which is the thief that grew up on the streets. And then there's the Valette side of herself. Mm -hmm. Valette, you'll remember from the first book, is the guise that she wore when she was uh, in the uh, balls and whatnot, pretending to be a noblewoman. So Vin likes dresses and all this kind of stuff. And at the same time, she's an absolute killing machine. And she has a hard time reconciling these two parts of her. And I think that what's exemplifying this in the book more than anything is how she ends up torn between Ellen and her uh, sort of love triangle love interest uh, Zane who's actually Ellen's father's bastard son so I guess (laughs) half brother (laughs) and she ends up really having a hard time deciding between the two. And I think that Zane represents a side of her that she sees as being violent and being destructive and having difficulty trusting while Ellen represents this side of her that's more feminine and Hmm. more, uh, I guess who she is. thought she was pretending to be when she was Valette. That's, you know, that's really interesting. I, what, because you had posed this question to me of the purpose of the Vinzane relationship when we were doing our planning. And I pretty much said almost exactly what you said. You made some great points. Uh, what I, I always thought that Zane was the kind of the, the foil for Ellen. Like you said, they're opposites. Ellen is safety and you mentioned femininity, which I thought is really interesting. And Zane is danger. Uh, they share many of the same features. Zane is definitely has those features that are twisted, very reminiscent of Vin's uh, upbringing, where she was skittish and on the edge and trusted no one. If if that woman came into her own with Alamancy and never met uh, Ellen, she may very well have been someone like Zane. So I think she sees that in herself. Um, Zane certainly serves as a temptation also, just a reminder of that dark past and the potential of her abilities. Uh, she, you know, Zane drags her to Chet's stronghold and they do something very Kelsier-like where they just go straight for the bad guy and use their powers to just wreck shit. And they get all the way to, to Chet's um thrown right in front of them they kill all the guards in this spectacular feat of of violence and mastery of allomancy uh and then vin shows mercy uh which is you know a comment on how she's different from zane and that was a really interesting um 
component to their relationship. The other thing that I thought about when I was thinking about the Vin Zane relationship and why it existed, uh, for me, when I think of Vin in this book, right, she's in basically a committed relationship with Ellen. And like, they're very serious at this point. It's like, why don't we get married kind of conversations and oh, we'll hold off. We'll see. So she's also still like, she may be turning 20 in the, no, she's not 20 yet. So she's still in her teens. She's, she's 18. She's 18 years old. This Ellen is the only boy she's ever been in a relationship with. So she's never really had the opportunity to kind of choose her destiny you know she was with Kelsier Kelsier died she's with Ellen now it, it she never really faced the temptation or the choice she kind of ended up with Ellen so Sanderson did something really smart in this book where he created the character of Zane a misborn with who's like Ellen however um he's kind of got a lot of Kelsier in him too but like the edgy side of Kelsier, the the dark side of Kelsier. <laughs> and that's the option that, you know, Zane represents. Because in a way, Vin, there was a lot Vin admired about Kelsier. I'm not saying that they were romantic in any way, but certainly she would find those qualities um, romantic in another person. So which is why she kind of falls for Zane for a while. It's, it's, um, yeah. uh, this, you know, Kelsier had this magnetism about him, and then since he died, Vin didn't even get to decide who she was going to be. He had Kelsier had died, and so now enter Zane, who is this edgy, edge lord, uh, mentally ill master alamancer guy. And all of a sudden, she's like, "Is this the part of me that I'm supposed to embrace? Is are my powers something that will keep me from ever?" relating to Ellen in any way am I really Zane and I think she her struggle with that is a huge part of her character development in this book and we all know this book's all about character development yeah so I think you did a great job of laying that out there and I think that our next questions now that we understand what the purpose of Zane in this book is is how successful of a device was Zane and how successful would you say a him and his relationship with Vin achieved that purpose for Sanderson as a writer? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say it was successful. You know, I think Zane poses some good questions. He's like, um, tell me, do they understand you, Vin? Can they understand you? And can a man love something he doesn't understand? Like, he's very clear on this, like, it's you and me are the only two that knows what this is like. No one else understands us. And can they even love us if they can't understand us? And I think what Sanderson was trying to work his way towards is she chooses Ellen because of his ability to trust and she it's like he doesn't need to understand everything about me we don't need to be the same we can be opposites but the success in this relationship is that he trusts me to do the right thing and so in that way i would say it's a success my only kind of qualm about the whole thing is that zane himself is not a likable guy like he's so obviously the wrong choice exactly and he's so obviously this 
edge lord of a guy. It's like we know Vin is never gonna choose him. It, it's fun to see him as that temptation. It was fun when they went to Chet's stronghold, but it's like, come on, really? Wh- what redeeming quality does Zane have that Vin would ever choose him over Ellen? You know, he's not a nice guy. <laughs> Just because he's also a misborn, it, it was my only. That was my only issue with the whole thing. Oh, Charles, but- you took the words right out of my <laughs> mouth with that one. Because what, <laughs> what I wrote in my, I was keeping a running notes list as I was reading through this book. And I wrote that no one is Team Zane. <laughs> no. So remember the, the Twilight books? I, I never I actually read them. <laughs> So, but one thing that was a phenomenon with those books was that people were picking sides, uh, Team Edward and Team Jacob, I believe, yeah, but I didn't right. look that up beforehand, so I might be, okay. And no one is going to read this book and be Team Zane because he's so obviously a bad choice for her. Right. And I think that, like you're saying, He's successful in raising a lot of these questions. He's successful in helping Vin grapple with all of these sides of herself. And I, I think I'll, I'll get to a quote uh, toward the end of this segment where I'll, I'll kind of say what I think Vin's overall journey is about realizing. But I think that he would have been more successful if we actually buy him as an option. Yeah. I believe it. I mean, it would be interesting because Vin, I keep forgetting, like, a part of me always go back to, like, she's an 18-year-old girl. It's like, can we please revisit that? She She should have no emotional maturity. The fact that Vin understands people at the level that she does is crazy to me. I'm like, I wish they showed more of an 18-year-old girl in Vin. And I feel like part of an 18-year-old girl is falling for, like, the the bad boy, you know, but Zane is just too over the top. It would have been interesting to have that, ooh, he's that, you know, the guy with the leather jacket and the motorcycle pulling up, you know, it's like, ooh, there's something kind of dangerous but interesting about this guy, but no, he's like full on like, I cut myself and I kill all these people and I don't care about anyone and I'm a total psycho. So, I mean, it's, it's a little too far. Well, and... We should probably also mention that as uh, former 18-year-old boys ourselves, we don't think that there's a lot of emotional maturity going on for 18-year-old boys either. Definitely not for us anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very true. And (laughs) having known each other as 18-year-old boys, we can (laughs) definitely say that. And I'll say too, the, the Zayn stuff, I think that we're we we go wrong to some extent here is that so Sanderson has noted that he uh, he plots out he outlines his plot really strongly and then he does what's called discovery writing his characters so that means as he's going through this plot he's trying to make the characters what they need to be to fit with it and works really really well in a lot of places i think zane is an example where it goes a little bit wrong and I think that what happens there is Sanderson needs Zane to fulfill both the role of Vin's love interest who's tempting her away from Ellen 
and as part of its plot, also wants Zane to fulfill the role of showing us that uh, you can hear voices when you have a metal spike inside of you. Right. And so he establishes that really well. And it this was a great last... twist. The idea was like when he, when we discover as the reader that he has an, uh, a nail on his, a spike in his back. And then he goes yes. on to, to the voice in the tone of the voice in his head changes as he's dying. Like those were, very interesting moments. Very well done. And I think he does a a better job at fulfilling that than maybe he does of the love interest. And uh, yeah, so we get that line that's along the lines of you are never crazy uh, in the mental health field, which I'm in. We wouldn't use that word. As a PhD we would... candidate in psychology. Yes. Yeah. So uh, obviously he's dealing with a lot of mental health difficulties here. We call what it looks like he has psychosis um but he it turns out he actually doesn't have psychosis there's just some voice talking to him somehow i think i'm probably spoiling a little bit of book three but i'll say that is being established and that's making him so let's say unstable that we just don't buy him as a good option for Vin. We don't want her with someone who's that unstable and violent. And I know that there's this stuff where it's like, oh, he reminds her of Kelsier. I think she even says it explicitly at one point. And I'll say he's got some of those elements. As you're saying, the edge lord side of it is just turned up to 11. And because of that, he doesn't remind me that much of Kelsier. And I have to imagine that a lot of readers were not reminded that much of Kelsier. Honestly, if he was a younger version of Kelsier, I thought they did a great job in the first book of uh, making Kelsier more of a mentor and even fatherly figure. At one point, I think he puts his arm around her or something. And uh, in the first book, and Sanderson says like he put a fatherly arm around her (laughs) and i actually like really appreciated that adverb there because (laughs) i was like this scene could have gotten very different (laughs) um so i thought they did a great job with that but i think yeah a younger kelsier if if zane could actually be that which i think he could have if sanderson wasn't trying to establish a bit about uh the what happens if you have a male spike in you then i think we would have had a much better love triangle there. And That's it would have so been really interesting. interesting. There would have been people who were team Zane. <laughs> right. I love how you, you tapped into Sanderson's writing style. It's such an interesting perspective that I didn't even consider. That's why we do the buddy reads to, you know, to, to expose ourselves to these new ideas. That's so true. I, I do think that we kind of missed an opportunity to, for Zane to be a more viable candidate for Vin like he was never in my idea of like oh my god she might go off with him I was just like there's no way like give me a break but and because we're missing that and we're in Vin's shoes right Mm -hmm. we don't buy into her temptation as much and that's what I think that's what's lost is we have to feel tempted right and it's still a very successful um character arc and it still has a fun twist sanderson always delivers on the twists but i do think for sure i i would be very interested to read the version of this book where zane is a little more likable a la kelsier 
Should Agreed. we just get right into the our ending twist reactions? We're sitting at about... I think minutes. it's time. All right. I want to start. The first twist I want to talk about is Osir being the mole. That's the one I want yes. to do first. Because this one is super good. The discerning eye could have maybe caught it, but and I knew it was coming. I'm trying to remember if I predicted it. I don't think there was any way. I did not predict it in my first read. Right. I know that for a fact. I, I know the moment. Like I was like, oh, this is the moment. Like it clearly has switched. But that's only because I remembered, you know, I was going back knowing what happened. So I found the moment when the switch occurred. And it's so interesting how he writes, he builds up this twist. Sanderson's like it's a so well magician. He hid he hid the mole in plain sight. You know, it's like sleight <laughs> exactly. of hand. He's doing all this stuff right in front of you, and you're like, what the heck? He has such a great idea of sowing seeds of distrust. And, you know, Vin's already someone who's very easy to distrust, so she immediately was like, it could be Ellen. It could be anybody. Yep. And so she was, like, trying to rule everyone out, and we never once suspected that the Chandra was a Chandra spy Playing a Chandra is so good. Um, I mean, when because in the first book, Vin learned to trust, right? She learned that it's better to trust and be betrayed than to suspect everyone. And what makes this twist so brilliant is that there was no traitor. It was the Chandra. <laughs> I mean, it was so brilliant. Everyone stayed true to to Vin and to Kelsier and to the vision it's just, oh man, you never see it coming. It's super good in that respect. I, I, I love this one. I remember being extremely invested in figuring out who the <laughs> who the Chandra is throughout this book, and you know, I, I do research in psychology. I'm a really investigative, dude. And I was uh, obsessed with this. I was scrutinizing it so much. That's why I remember I didn't figure it out because <laughs> I just did not think to <laughs> to go for the actual thing? Like, contract think it's so Sanderson good in a higher compliment where it's like i scrutinized this writing trying to figure it out and you still surprised me and you still surprised me in a way where i was like of course yeah like that's the most it was beautifully part. done and yeah I, for me it's just that second layer of there being no traitor it was basically a it was a conjurer replacing a conjurer. I, I just, I don't know. That's yeah. the best um, twist in the book, probably for me, is this one here. I just thought it was so good. It takes a real well, skill to kind of, and then he like takes the heat off of the conjurer by having us follow that one, that one dude. I forget his name, who was in the religion of the. Is it Lemieux or something like it that? It starts with the letter D. To, to something. Demieux. Demieux. Something Demure like that. Or something. Vin started following, like he was sneaking out, and they started following him. And I'm like, oh, okay. It's like he knows Sanderson knows how to balance the heat of suspicion around, and it's all right. And meanwhile, yep. the conjurer was there the entire <laughs> time, like giving you advice, like, oh, the skeleton's very old, mysterious. And like, oh, it's yeah. not possible. And you're like, okay, well, it's not possible. <laughs> well, that's Sanderson using his understanding of the the tools of writing against us because he puts 
at that time Oshore Oshore Anyway, he puts him, the Chandra, in the position of authority on this. And we as the reader take to that because we're familiar with it. Oh, okay. There's a Chandra here who's going to help explain right. the things and that we need to know. And that Chandra take the form of humans as part of the contract. And like it was insulting yes. to take the form of a dog. Like This was the first time this was ever happening. Yes. And it was just putting that uh, Chandra in the place of authority on this issue we think as the reader that we are going to learn the things we need to help us solve the problem from this person so that or Condra, dog and then we take his words the same way vin does where we're completely trusting of them <laughs> and we view this person as this very trustworthy person so or trustworthy Condra, and <laughs> then we just, uh, I mean, if you're anything like me, you completely fell for it, didn't even consider the Contra and all this. I know. And it was there the whole time, too. On the reread, I was like, there's the moment. He put it in there. It's like when you're watching a magician and you know the trick. It's like, oh, I see now that sleight of hand that yeah. he snuck in there. It's so sneaky. I uh, mean, it was uh, yeah, really great. And it's funny because he wraps it up in this, oh, he's learning to trust Vin narrative <laughs> where Vin's being nicer. And then there is this moment pretty early on where now Ten Soon is coming up to Vin and giving her a vial kind of like without her requesting it, I think it was, something right. along those lines. Right. And she literally thinks, oh, you've never done that before. And we as readers are like, well, that's because he's learning to trust you, Vin. <laughs> and in reality, it's because he's a different being. Yeah. It's not the same Chandra. So good. Uh, so that was my favorite twist. Yeah, that's so good. I think that it's probably the it's probably the most well written twist. I mean it's very much most an old fashioned whodunit, you know. The, and like yeah. sometimes you can do these whodunits and it's something that's totally out of left field. You know, it takes real I think one of the hardest things you could probably do. I, I something I know I could never write is a good whodunit where the the answer is in plain sight and you know, you have to you know, it's this great reveal that you're like, of course, why didn't I think of that? It's like, that's such a yep. hard reaction to get, especially from a discerning reader, scrutinizing everything, trying to figure it out. And you have that confidence to just put them right in the front of everything and <laughs> like oh. just chime in with ideas and provide us with facts. Oh man, it's so good. That's just, that's Sanderson's mastery of, of plotting there that really pays off. Well done. He always has yeah. payoff. I think of this as, the better version, although I, I really I think one of the better twists in the last book is that Sean ends up being a Mistborn. But I think kind of like the same stuff that Sanderson was playing with there, where it's in plain sight. Because look, she's obviously a soother. I think it was right, uh, and it's like, oh, we're just showing you that Vin has discovered this, but in reality, she's a Mistborn, and there's no reason to think that she wasn't. It's just oh. We're being told she's a soother, so we're accepting that at face value. While that could be a hint, in theory, that she might be a Mistborn at the very least. And this is an even better version of that great twist. Oh, so. yeah, it was definitely a better version. Because in this version, he was like challenging us. He's like, there is a spy in the ranks. Yes. 
and we're like, okay, who is it going to be? Does he give us enough information? Because I'm like, he doesn't give us enough information. Like, there's still so many people it could be. But then it's like, oh, duh. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah. Man, well, then I think we should also get to the the biggest twist, at least from a consequentialist perspective in this book, which is that we get Vin to this point where she's in the Well of Ascension, and we think that what must be an evil Miss Spirit has uh, injured Ellen perhaps fatally if Vin doesn't take the powers for herself to heal him. And then it turns out that when Vin gives up the power, the thing that was supposed to be the noble thing to do, sets free some sort of evil entity. <laughs> and so good. there's, yeah, Charles, uh, some reactions to this? I think it's brilliant. You know, it was like kind of what I said in the Say Zed arc. I was like, it's always nice when you make a character feel bad for doing the right thing like yeah and it's also just a trope on fantasy at large where it's like this selfless act of like i'm i'm giving it up i'm doing the right thing i've come full circle in my in my identity i i'm gonna this is what i'm destined to do i'm the chosen one i'm giving it up and then it was like I'm free, and he just like flies off, and you're like, "Oh, what? That's so good." <laughs> free, and then it's like, <laughs> and it's just like, "Oh," and then Vin is immediately like, "Oh, I fucked up. <laughs> it's yep. not good." And then, um, the mist points to the that bead that uh yes. Ellen swallows to become Mistborn to save his life. It's like, oh my god, this mist thing was trying to force me to because it can't communicate for whatever reason it's yes. trying to force me to take the power it's tried so hard to communicate with me that i need to take the power and i just was so virtuistic virtuistic that i was ready to let ellen go to do the right thing and i know and just messed everything up like so much horrible stuff has now been released onto the world and that to me is such a brilliant it works on so many levels it works on like the the character development level it just fantasy tropes at large at sanderson's plotting and his ability to write twists i mean so yeah she threw the ring into mount doom you're (laughs) supposed to win when you do that but this time the ring actually ended up being the the good thing and then now the big bad is released yeah what a great it's way to end this book too so good because i feel like so, the book so was kind good. of dragging at a lot of parts so to get to this part where it ends with you wanting more is really important and brings this book up a whole point in the rating system for me it's like wow the the way sanderson brings it home is unlike any other he's always satisfying and he always makes it worth your while to read. He's like, you he read really Sanderson, does. you know you're going to get a return on your time invested. And this came through in a big way for me. And this this ending twist is a huge part of it. His last 15% of his book is just like twist after twist. So good. And I just love this whole concept that everyone was being so on their high horse and so virtuistic and so ready to sacrifice that they ended up releasing 
evil. Yeah, it's so well done. Uh, I love that the Miss Spirit, who we're so convinced as readers, is the evil one, especially after it stabs Ellen, (laughs) turns out being a good force. (laughs) I I love that, in, in addition to all that you said about the giving it up. And there's just great foreshadowing towards this that manages it's not as subtle as the reveal of Tensoon but it is uh, it is subtle enough where like, it takes hmm, a lot to connect ripping, the dots in the right keeps way ripping all the pages off of this book and the, and then in the beginning it's like I write this in metal because nothing else can be trusted I mean that's and, telegraphed and we still don't figure it out Right. I mean, I you can tell that something's up because that's very obviously stated. And then at the end, right, in the right before the rising action, you have Seizet and Tindwell being like, someone is messing with our notes and like trying yeah. to hide stuff. And so you're like, man, something is going down between only metal being true. And because they're not doing anything in metal, obviously, they're writing all this stuff down. And it's all this written stuff that's getting affected. So you see the connection. But... The big leap is that there's this level of intrigue that's just so deep in this world that yeah. the, the twist at the end of this book sets a whole different tone for, for book three. It's like, wow, what a big <laughs> what a big fallout that had. Talk about taking over the Lord Ruler. Now it's whatever this pure evil spirit is. And that puts into perspective the Lord Ruler also, which I almost didn't even talk about. The Lord Ruler, who we thought was evil, he's still redemption. Evil, but he's got a bit of a redemption in this because he, he does. was the one that did his best to. He knew the stakes. Like the person who set him forth, his uncle was the one who wrote all this stuff, and he's like, "I remember things differently than what's written. I don't know what is going on. I just know that it can't go on as everyone expects it to." And so he takes Rashik, the Lord Ruler puts him in charge of making sure that the power is not released. So now he looks like this evil, backstabbing, conniving, sniving beta male dude for just stabbing this guy in the back and taking the power. But he was the only one that knew what was at stake. And he did his best to create a world in his own image, but he ended up messing it up. And like he put the planet too close to the sun and then had to make ash <laughs> so that the sun wouldn't kill everybody. And then he had to make people uh, be more sturdy against ash. So he was just like doing his best, but he kept messing up. And yeah. and then you get what you have in, uh, in book one. So it does give you a new, um, a new opinion of the Lord ruler of all people. Well, yeah, I can't remember if this was on or off air, but maybe we talked about it in our first podcast. I mentioned that I think Straff and uh, Sean in the first book are the two most unambiguous, uh, like evil characters. Right. I think that continues here. Straff has zero redeeming qualities. Zero. And he continues to have I zero think in this book. He, I think. I think we discussed the Lord Ruler briefly, and I said, well, especially with stuff that's coming up, the Lord Ruler has more redeeming qualities than does maybe even Sean Illarial, <laughs> so uh, by the very least, on the podcast. more than Straff. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that, yeah, he definitely has more redeeming qualities than Straff. Straff was, you find out he's just worse than you expected. Terrible. And so... 
but you actually find out the the Lord Ruler had somewhat good intentions. Uh, he was still like a tyrant and enslaved people, and yeah, was not a nice I mean, dude. I, but and what he does to the terrorist people obviously is genocide is never acceptable. yeah reprehensible. <laughs> and at the same time, in a in a twisted way, which I think is fair to a guy who in his regular life beforehand obviously was had some jealousies and some hatred uh, you know not a great guy but probably hero of his think own about story it, if, he, if the deepness was as bad as he knew it to be he's the only one that knows the truth so he's yeah, like well, that's i where... can't let it happen again i have to you know kill everyone in the religion because the deepness is out there trying to trick people and i just gotta do everything i can to cover it up i just think he wasn't capable uh, yeah, he he was the only well, one that knew the truth, and he was given the power, but he didn't have the capability. So now he's just trying to like, you know, he's trying to treat symptoms and cause making things even worse. It's like, oh man, the planet's bad now. I have to put ash in it. Oh no, the ash was bad now. I have to change people. Oh man, I, yeah, like the terrorists can't follow the can't send anyone to the well of ascension. I got to kill them all now. Oh man. Like, so he's like trying to change things. He's just making everything worse. But yeah. I feel also in a way he was um, evil enough to be okay with those things in the first place. So, well, I think so too. I think that what he does to the terrorist people is done from a place where he, what he doesn't want is for someone to also have alimantic powers For sure. and ferrochemy you could argue could that he also him. didn't want and anyone to learn about the religion and the well of ascension and try and take the power yeah that's uh, for sure you part could of argue it. that it's well i think that part of it is that he doesn't want to end up in a place where someone could replace him because as he indicates at the end of the first book he thinks that he's the only one with the knowledge of all of this stuff around uh, ruin and all the bad stuff that will benight the world <laughs> if he is destroyed. So he thinks, hey, if someone actually gets these powers and kills me or replaces me, then they're not going to know what to do. <laughs> right. And I, only I can do this. So I think, obviously, awful, awful things that he does. But I think... Yeah, he's the hero of his own story. He thinks he's doing the right thing. Right. You can't justify a lot of his actions, but he was coming from a place of only I really know how to keep this planet all, you know, from from total ruin. So, but no pun intended. No pun intended, my friends. Uh, well, we're kind of maxed out on time, but there was something I wanted to surprise you with a little bit of trivia. Um, but okay. to to leave to leave everyone home with, I was perusing through um, Sanderson's annotations of his chapters, which is such a great thing to do if you really enjoyed the book to go back and read those things. He gives you the keys into his brain. It's really interesting. Um, but do you remember a scene? Ellen and Vin have dinner with Chet. Chet's in Luthadel, and there's a line Chet says where. He says, um, I've already lied to you three times. Yes. Do you know what the three lies are? Because I know them now. I remember when I came across that, that I 
thought there would be th- three actual lies. Like Sanderson didn't just pull out a number, but there I are three lies. didn't go. Yeah, I didn't go back and. I remember reading that line and being again. like, "I, you know what? I'll take his word for it." <laughs> and I kept reading, but I have the three lies here, and they're very interesting. Um, okay. The first lie is that he didn't care if Alrian ran off. That's lie number one. That's fair and definitely shown by. I, I like how her arc ends up, mm-hmm. actually, and uh, how she runs toward the, and the army, and then he has to follow her if he's going with his troops. Right, and she's an interesting he's character. He's going to keep her alive. That, like she plays a role in order to influence people around her. Like her being an Alamancer and then affecting Breeze was also very interesting. But um, so that was lie number one. The second lie is that he wasn't annoyed to find that Breeze was having a relationship with Alrien. That's fair. I mean, we spoke a little bit about the kind of creepy age gap between Ellen and Vin, and this makes that look totally appropriate (laughs) because Breeze is, I think, in his mid-30s, and Alrien is 18. Oh, yeah, he's Uh, more than... I think yeah that he's way way older. So it's very weird. Like Alrien is young, um, but he tries to yeah, make Alrien like is into it. But it's still like okay. But at what? How much agency does she have as being eighteen? But whatever. I guess in it's the, weird in the final empire, you just age a lot faster. I suppose. I think yeah, that, it's interesting how he plays that with uh, her being the one who is using Almancy to seduce him, but he wasn't using it on her. I guess that's an attempt to equal the power dynamic there, but I think it's a very 2007. I mean, Bruce does feel guilty about it. He is, like, has the decency to feel shame. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, it was 2007. I think uh, Sanderson wouldn't be writing that in 2020. Who's to say? You know, it's a different time and place. And now the third lie, and this is very interesting is that he told three lies during the conversation. Oh. He actually he only, only told, two? told two, but that made it three. But that... Which is why he said, good luck figuring out what they are. Mm-hmm. So both of the other lies were about, basically that he cares about his daughter, even though he he pretends he doesn't. Right, because she's and in the hands that, of Ellen and Breeze. At, that, at this yeah. moment. And that ends up being pretty much the most key part of her and Set's relationship to the plot. So I appreciate that those are the two other lies. Well done by Brandon Sanderson. Yep, that's some fun trivia. That's a deep cut written by Sanderson himself. That's the kind of content you can expect from a podcast like this one. What other podcast is talking about Chet's Three Lies in Mistborn Book Two, Wells of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. How many? Uh, there's probably at least one. I, I found zero. a. No, there's a podcast that's only about Brandon Sanderson's work, and I think the Cosmere maybe in particular. I um, wish I remembered well, the name so maybe. I could. Maybe we'll I'll have to go back and listen. But we're you know less than five. Oh, the Shardcast, the Brandon Sanderson podcast. The Shardcast? Shard. Oh, come on, man. <laughs> You're better than that. The Shardcast. 
and they've been doing it since 2012. Wow. They've been at it. Wow. Five stars with 132 ratings. That's pretty good. I have to listen. Go listen to I'm the Shardcast. Go listen to Shardcast. See if they talk about Chet's lies. Because that's a deep They probably cut. do. I mean, they I mean, must. How much, uh, all these they got to cover a lot of ground in eight years of talking only about Brandon Sanderson's books. I know. You, they must have covered it. But you know what? Less than five podcasts probably have talked about I think that's probably Chet's fair. Lies. So Might just be two. Are good. Might just be two. So that's the show, everybody. Thank you for listening. Where can they reach us again, Charles? Where can they reach us? They can reach us on <laughs> Facebook and Instagram at the FTF Podcast and on Twitter at the FTF Podcast One, number one. Uh, there we are also at the FTF Podcast.com and our email is the FTF Podcast at gmail.com. So nailed it. Uh, be sure to I was putting you on the spot to see <laughs> to see if you would get all that. Uh, you I, did nail it. I was there when they were written as El- as um Elrond says in Lord of the Rings. I don't Oh, no, no, no. It's Aslan in One uh, Witch in the Wardrobe. He's like, don't cite the deep magic to me. I was there when it was written. That's Aslan. Yeah. And uh, so I'm now saying, don't tell me I don't know where we can go on the podcast because I was there. I created it. We created it. <sighs> anyway, that was close enough. Guys, thank you so much for listening. We know you have a lot of choices when it comes to choosing podcasts, and we're so glad that you chose ours. We hope you come back. We're going to have, uh, later on in the week, we're going to do our review of the reviews for this book. Remember, we're spinning it off into its own segment, seeing as we've already maxed out our time for today. I think we made the very wise choice of making it its own episode. So that's coming out very soon. Take a look out for that. There will be many good reviews to review. So stick out for that. And in two weeks, we continue our buddy read. That's right. With the Hero of Ages, the final book of the first trilogy of Mistborn. That's right. If if you're reading along, be sure to get cracking on book three because in two weeks' time, we're going to be talking so you don't want to miss that this epic trilogy comes to an end and we're going to be there isn't there something you want to tell them now Charles there certainly is thank you for listening everybody go forth and conquer friends is there something you want to say nailed it <laughs>